Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to World War II Chronicles, the podcast with the nearly insurmountable goal of covering the entire Second World War from its first shots right through to its final bombs. For the first episode, we'll start from what seems to be the most logical place, the beginning. Though when did World War II begin exactly? Did it begin on December 7, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor? For America, sure, but it's not called a world war for nothing. So did it begin in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and prompted France and the United Kingdom to go to war? Many people count this date as the official start of the Second World War, but simply jumping in then wouldn't make for a very complete podcast. So we have to go back even further. Before Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, before Japan conquered Manchuria, all the way back to the ending of the First World War. Though we could, no doubt, go back further, to the rise of nationalism and to industrialization, but this podcast is going to be long enough as it is. So let's just start in 1919. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. For four years, the roar of guns and the haze of smoke dominated the fields of France and Belgium. Death had visited upon Europe a toll harsher than it had ever seen before. Ten million men had died, and the flower of Europe was gone. In the lyrics of Willie McBride, a whole generation was butchered and damned. But on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, it would come to an end. That night, a waxing moon rose over a cratered and scarred landscape as former enemies met to clear the dead and exchange prisoners. Within weeks, the leaders of the world would converge on Paris to decide what to make of the mess they had created. It's hard to imagine the toll the First World War took on Europe and the world. In January 1914, the world, from an admittedly Eurocentric point of view, must have seemed in the midst of a golden age. Wealth and prosperity were pouring into Europe from its global colonial network as trade and migration barriers yielded to the unrelenting march of enlightenment, bringing the nations of Europe closer together. Personal freedoms and representative government were spreading to the old holdouts of despotism, as even in Russia serfdom had been abolished. The centuries-long centralization of nation-states that had begun with the Peace of Westphalia was at its pinnacle, and even the monarchs of the continent, half of them sharing a common grandmother in Queen Victoria, sought to bring their realms closer together. The First World War would put an end to all of this. Though industrialization and education created wealth never before seen, it also laid the foundation for an ability to wage war on an unprecedented scale. The centralization of the state, though beneficial in terms of creating common markets, exasperated racial and ethnic tensions for minorities seeking self-determination. Lastly, the system of alliances created by Bismarck, and so disastrously misapplied by his successors, manifested a line of dominoes ready to topple at any provocation. 
When the first domino fell in August of 1914, it triggered a chain of events that would not halt until all of that accumulated wealth, all of that industrial might, and all of those ethnic tensions had exhausted themselves. By 1918, the Austrian and Ottoman empires would cease to exist. Austria-Hungary was consumed by its own internal divisions. The Ottoman, already the old man of Europe, gave its last dying breath and dissolved. The Russian Empire was transformed by revolution into the first communist state, laying the seeds of the Cold War. The German Empire was on its knees, totally emasculated. The French and British, though victorious, were hardly in better shape. It was in this atmosphere that the leaders of France and the United Kingdom descended like conquering heroes, with bluster and malice, on Versailles, where they would dictate terms to the vanquished Germans. The victorious allies were interested first and foremost in vengeance. In those four years of meaningless carnage, few could articulate the reasons why they had fought so hard, but what they could elaborate was their contempt, even hatred, for the Bosch. In the House of Commons, in March 1919, Winston Churchill made his feelings on the matter quite clear. Quote, We are enforcing the blockade with vigor. We have strong armies ready to advance at the shortest notice, Germany is very near starvation. Now is the time to settle. End quote. The French were even less sympathetic, having suffered a humiliating defeat in 1871, in which their eastern realms of Alsace and Lorraine were lost, and they were forced to pay an indemnity of one billion dollars. They were in no mood for clemency. This was only made more bitter by having forfeited a generation of young men to war with the Germans. The French army experienced unimaginable losses many units suffering 100% casualties or greater, entire divisions turning over, not a man present at its end who had seen its beginning. In the face of this walked President Woodrow Wilson, an academic who had presided over Princeton University and had been governor of New Jersey. He did not carry the same desire for revenge as his European counterparts. Instead, he proposed a plan for lasting peace that looks remarkably prescient even today. His 14 points would have likely gone a long way to preventing the Second World War had they been implemented. They included preventing secret deals between nations like those that had triggered the war, arms control, and most importantly, the creation of a global association of nations. This League of Nations, he envisioned as a means of resolving international disputes in a large diplomatic forum, rather than through secret back-channel deals. He imagined that had Austria and Serbia been able to resolve their difference openly and diplomatically, Europe would never have taken the path to destruction, driven by timetables and devised by generals. Unfortunately, the League of Nations would lack the power to do much more than acquiesce. Instead, the League of Nations would become little more than a diplomatic debate club, while the new nations of Europe began to wade into the murky waters of European statehood. From the Baltic to the Adriatic, new countries came into being. Poland was restored and portions of the former German Empire receded to it to create a corridor to the sea. Austria was carved into its component parts. Hungary, deprived of Transylvania, bordered the newly independent Serbian pan-Slavic experiment in Yugoslavia. To its north lay the brand new Czechoslovakia with its small population of ethnic Germans in its western hills. Of course there was Austria, no longer an empire or a monarchy, its once revered Habsburgs, now private citizens. Landlocked and ruined by war, it could be little more than a spectator. And seated next to this jigsaw puzzle of small, divided nations was the humbled, yet still mighty Germany. Lloyd George already saw the folly in this in 1919. 
quote, If Germany feels that she has been unjustly treated in the peace of 1919, she will find means of exacting retribution on her conquerors. I am, therefore, strongly averse to transferring more Germans from German rule to rule of some other nation than can possibly be helped. I cannot conceive any greater cause of future war than that the German people, who have certainly proved themselves one of the most vigorous and powerful nations in the world, should be surrounded by a number of small states, many of them consisting of people who have never previously set up a stable government for themselves, but each of them containing masses of Germans, clamoring for reunion with their native land. End quote. Of course he was right, and of course his warning was not heeded. On May 7, 1919, the treaty was presented to the Germans, who refused to sign it, horrified by its terms. But the blockade continued, for despite the armistice, the war was not over. Starving and on the verge of revolution, the Germans returned to Versailles in June, prepared to accept their humiliation. The League and the peace were doomed. Further complicating matters, the U.S. Congress failed to ratify the treaty, thus keeping the United States out of the League of Nations. Though it had been the brainchild of the American president, many within the United States were quickly turning to their old habit of isolationism. Though President Wilson fought hard to get the treaty through Congress, his efforts were ultimately in vain. We have lost it, he said, and soon we shall be witnessing the tragedy of it all. And so America would revert to its old ways, keen to forget that it had ever visited war upon Europe. Rather than concern themselves with the affairs of far-off Frenchmen and Germans, Americans desired nothing more than to enjoy the fruits of their labors and to turn their backs to the ocean. No one embodied this feeling more so than President Harding. Elected in 1920, Harding was the first Republican to govern in the post-war years. He was a large, boisterous man who perhaps indulged a little bit too much in drink and women. He championed the never-again mentality towards war in Europe and rode it to victory. Unfortunately, his administration was rocked by scandals, and he died of apparent food poisoning in office. His successor, Calvin Coolidge, was a far more placid man, but no less committed to the platform of isolationism. It was under his administration that the noble, yet impractical, commitment to pacifism came to dominate American foreign policy. That pacifism could grip America so tightly seems strange to us today, in our world of endless wars on multiple continents. But the commitment was so great during the 1920s and early 30s that it was not even an issue in the election of 1928. Both Republican and Democratic candidates ran on isolationist foreign policy platforms. The mood even resulted in the Kellogg-Bryan Pact between the U.S. and a host of other nations, the signatories of which were a who's who of the Second World War's belligerents. Of course, this exercise in foreign policy through wishful thinking yielded nothing other than to make its participants feel good about themselves. The pinnacle of isolationist pacifism would come in the form of Herbert Hoover's administration, the last president of the Republican ascendancy. He was a devout Quaker and viewed war as something akin to heresy. It was under his watch that Japan invaded China and effectively began the Second World War in Asia. All Hoover had to offer was moral condemnation for Japan. The Japanese took note of Hoover's displeasure and promptly continued to sack Manchuria. The isolationist pacifist mood of the early 1930s left the military gutted and downtrodden. Officers were advised not to go into public in uniform, and cadets were mocked in their schools. The zeitgeist may best have been reflected by the Senate Armed Services Committee who, upon receiving General MacArthur's budget proposal, asked him, What do you need all this toilet paper for? Presumably followed by self-contented laughter. 
Add to all of this the stock market crash of 1933, and the United States appeared woefully unprepared for a devastating conflict only a decade away. On the other side of the Atlantic, the dictators were having no such illusions about the utility of war. As the United States sunk into economic crisis and pacifist isolationism, Hitler was plotting his rise to power. On February 27, 1933, the Reichstag was alight with flame. As crowds gathered round to witness the blaze, the hoarse screams of Hermann Goering could be heard echoing through the streets. He was shouting about a communist plot. The fire was a signal for German communists to rise up and overthrow the state. Of course this was a ruse. Germany's communists were in hiding and lacked the influence or members to overthrow the government. The National Socialists, on the other hand, did possess such an ability, and by framing the communists, they removed one more obstacle to power. With them out of the way, the Nazi party would receive 44% of the vote and 288 seats. Hitler was now perilously close to ruling Germany, but one significant rival remained, one within his own party, Ernst Röhm. Rome was the head of the Sturmabteilung, or SA, who were effectively the Nazis' goon squad. During the heady days of street brawls in the 1920s, the SA were the ones who took to the streets to fight communists with fists and bats. By the 1930s, though, the SA had morphed into something closer to Rome's own personal militia and outnumbered even the army. This, Hitler could not abide. He needed to rid himself of the swaggering, hard-drinking, hard-fighting Rome, but rather than simply disappear him in the middle of the night, he practiced the old maxim of keeping your enemies closer. He showered him with honors and toasted his success, all the while Himmler, head of the notorious Schutzstaffel, or SS, was feeding Hitler reports of a planned mutiny by the SA and lending to Hitler's already growing paranoia. It all came to a head on June 30th, 1934, on what has come to be known as the Night of the Long Knives. In pouring rain, Hitler's personal bodyguard, led by Sepp Dietrich, another street brawler from the early days, stormed the SA headquarters in Munich. There, they found Rome naked in bed with a male lover. He was arrested and imprisoned. The next morning, Rome was gunned down in his cell. Over the next three days, all across Germany, hundreds of other SA leaders were rounded up and executed. Hitler's last significant competitor in Germany was now dead, and a month later, President Hindenburg died. In the wake of his death, Hitler abolished the presidency and declared himself Führer and Reich Chancellor. He was now the head of the state, head of government, and head of the armed forces. To solidify his personal authority over the military, he mandated that all generals and admirals take an oath of loyalty to him. It read thusly, I swear before God to give my unconditional obedience to Adolf Hitler, Führer of the Reich of the German people, Supreme Commander of the Wehrmacht, and I pledge my word as a brave soldier to observe this oath always, even at peril of my life. End quote. And still the democracies looked inward. The United Kingdom was as distracted and emasculated as the United States. There, as unemployment exploded, appetite for all things martial plummeted. The students of Oxford adopted the Jode Resolution, declaring that under no circumstances would they defend the crown or country. The British were further distracted by instability at court. Though the monarchy retained little absolute power, it certainly still possessed a spiritual grip on the empire, and so King Edward VIII's abdication left the country metaphysically adrift. The coronation of George VI went some length to help correct this, but the feeble governments of Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain embraced the country's dour mood rather than attempt to cure it. Across the Channel, in France, 
distraction with domestic affairs was equally problematic. French party politics were nearly as bad as those in Germany the decade prior, with socialists and nationalists battling in the streets. Fortunately for Europe, fascism did not come to reign in Gaul, but the nation's political divide left it weak and vulnerable. Though its army was the largest in Europe, it was neglected and unprepared. The Maginot Line was supposed to prevent another disastrous German invasion. All it did was breed complacency. All the while, Mussolini had his vision set on a new Roman Empire, and he was acting on that ambition. Benito Mussolini was born in 1883 to destitute parents in a poor village along the spine of Italy. His mother was a school teacher and his father a blacksmith with a rather revolutionary bent, to the extent that he named his son after the Mexican revolutionary Benito Juarez. In his youth, Benito seemed to live up to his namesake. He was petulant and rebellious against the omnipotent church. He would act out in mass, he led a gang of child miscreants, and he seemed hell-bent on causing mischief. In his teens, his mother sent him away to religious school, where he achieved notoriety for his behavior and was eventually expelled. Upon his return, his atheist father gave him a heroic welcome and thought him quite the little socialist champion for taking on the church. He fancied himself a protector of the oppressed, when in reality, he was a thug and a bully. As he got older, he discovered his lust for women, drink, and gambling, all of which he indulged without restraint. This left him in debt and with enemies. So in 1902, he fled Italy for Switzerland. There he did little better with himself, but did manage to fall in with the crowd of Italian expatriate laborers. With them, he got his first taste of power and began to develop his ability to drum up a frenzy. He became a leader of the Italian trade union of bricklayers and bricklayers' assistants, where he gave his first charismatic speeches. Of course, he was a terrible bricklayer, and a worker for that matter, but that didn't stop him from rallying his fellow workers. Not that he particularly cared about the plight of the working class either, but the adulation helped satisfy his own deep-seated insecurity. Benito would spend the next few years rambling around Europe. He was arrested in Switzerland, then in France, then spent some time in Germany and Austria before returning to Italy, where he finally began his military service in 1905. He passed his 18 months in much the same way he did the past several years, by being generally belligerent and subversive. After his discharge, he returned to teaching where he once again met with little success. After three successive posts, he returned home to his father's tavern and spent much of his time editing an inflammatory socialist newspaper. It was here that he met his future wife, Rochelle. He may have genuinely loved her, and she seemed to truly appreciate him. He was certainly a man of action, and no one could accuse him of timidity. After several more arrests and various run-ins with the law, Mussolini found himself in complete control of the socialist weekly magazine, The Class Struggle, or La Lotta de Classe in Italian. Though still destitute, he was in his element. He could achieve notoriety and even something approaching fame through his paper and frequent arrests, only raised his profile. He was taking the first steps toward becoming Il Duce. His first real power move came in 1911, when Italy went to war with the Ottomans over islands in the Aegean. This was an opportunity to flex his muscle and test the loyalty of his following. He called for a general strike to protest the war of conquest abroad and was moderately successful. The shops and factories of Forley, where he published, were closed, and he and his comrades inflicted some minor damage on local infrastructure. The strike was brought to an end quickly, though, when a troop of cavalry dispersed them and crushed any hope of revolution Benito may have been harboring. To his satisfaction, though, he was arrested and put on trial, a perfect platform for him to claim the mantle of martyrdom. 
He was convicted and sentenced to one year term of prison, but only served nine months. Upon leaving prison, he was hailed a socialist hero and made chief editor of Avanti, the socialist national newspaper. His efforts were truly paying off now. His stunt in Forley had gained him notoriety and respect, as well as massive readership. The coming of the First World War would present him with yet another, greater opportunity, though. Mussolini had always only been half committed to the ideals of socialism and pacifism. What he truly craved was power and respect. So just as the guns of August were laying in their elevation, Mussolini launched his own paper and seemingly betrayed his socialist brethren. Il Popolo d'Italia was an instant success. Its first edition sold out, and its cries for war apparently resounded. His fellow socialists, on the other hand, were infuriated. Not only had he turned his back on their ideals, but he had struck out on his own, likely with money from wealthy elites. The Socialist Party put him on trial and evicted him from their ranks. What little effect this had. Il Popolo only grew in popularity, and the more popular it became, the more money it brought in for its owner. Not just from sales, but from wealthy patrons in France and England who wished to see Italy join them in the conflict. With more copies selling, he had more and more followers calling him Duce. And finally, on May 24, 1915, Mussolini got what he desired. Italy declared war on the Central Powers. Now he could truly fulfill his destiny. He enlisted in the army and was sent to fight in the Alps against the Austrians. There, he chronicled his very real struggle against the enemy and the elements. Every week for over a year his war diary was published, and all of Italy came to know the name Benito Mussolini. He was a genuine war hero, and when he was promoted to corporal, the country celebrated with him. Injuries would soon have him off the front line, though. Back at the presses, he continued to woo his following, which now included ever-increasing numbers of veterans returning home to few prospects. When the war ended, and all Italy had to show for its millions of dead and wounded were a few scraps of territory in the Alps and on the Adriatic, the people were seething. Socialists, who had opposed the war from the beginning, were showing their displeasure with frequent demonstrations and belittled and mocked the returned soldiers. Mussolini seized the veterans' resentment of their treatment and in 1919 formed the Fascist Party. Named for the Fasces, the ancient Roman symbol of power over life and death, they adopted their famous uniforms and became the Black Shirts, then organized all across Italy. They were pitted against Mussolini's old compatriots, the Socialists, who were committed to bringing about a communist revolution of their own in Italy. Weekly strikes were held across all industries, bringing life throughout the country to a screeching halt. The electricity would fail, the post wouldn't be delivered, and the railways were all but useless. Against this, the government was powerless. The fascists offered an answer. Just as in Germany, the fascists were street-brawling thugs. They would turn out to socialist strikes and mercilessly beat strikers with bats and clubs. Despite, or perhaps because of, their unapologetic violence, the fascists gained massive popularity as the socialists ground society to a halt. Fearing for their lives, some socialists began calling the police for protection, only to find themselves under arrest, as most of the policemen were themselves fascists. Joining the ranks of the ex-soldiers and delinquent thugs were the professional classes and the army. By 1922, having secured for himself a massive power base, Mussolini seized the opportunity to take real power. Under the guise of expelling ineffective governments, Blackshirts stormed and evicted the governments of Ravenna, Ferrara, and Bologna. When the government of Luigi Facta did nothing to stop him, he knew his time was near. The socialists, for their part, 
called a nationwide strike with the fascists promptly beat into submission. Having cowed the socialists and seen that the national government was powerless, Mussolini made his greatest move yet and marched on Rome. On October 27, 1922, the call went out and fascists from every corner of Italy descended on the Eternal City. Mostly armed with their favorite bludgeons, few carried anything resembling military-grade equipment. But their strength didn't come from force of arms, but rather force of will. By October 29th, the premier had resigned, and King Victor Emmanuel summoned Mussolini to Rome to form a government. The reign of fascism had begun. It is difficult today to picture Mussolini as many did then. Today he is remembered and mocked as something of a bumbling fool, but during the 1920s and 30s, he was considered, perhaps, the greatest man alive. He defeated the socialists, who today would be called communists, and got the country working again. He initiated massive infrastructure projects and sent airplanes and sea liners across the Atlantic. Men from the likes of Gandhi to Churchill praised him, and he even engineered the Lateran Treaty with the Vatican, in which the current arrangement was born. Somewhat ironically, this formerly anti-clerical atheist had negotiated a treaty with the very church with which he had battled his entire life and guaranteed its survival in the heart of Italy. So by 1935, Mussolini had been in power for well over a decade, and visions of empire were growing more vivid by the day. To realize his vision, he decided to invade the weak and seemingly defenseless Ethiopia. On October 3rd of that year, 200,000 Italian soldiers crossed the border from the Italian colonies of Somalia and Eritrea into Ethiopia. Though somewhat of a bungled campaign, Italian armies took the capital of Addis Ababa by June of 1936, and Mussolini declared the dawn of his fascist empire. And, of course, the democracies and League of Nations did nothing. There was a half-hearted talk of embargo against Italy, but some were afraid that it might lead to war. In retrospect, this was a war that the democracies could have easily won in 1935. Though it was not obvious at the time, Italy was very much a paper tiger. The Royal Navy alone could have halted the Italian fleet en route to Ethiopia, and the French army could have easily contained the Italian. But it was not to be. The world was content to allow Mussolini his empire, and there would be many more transgressions before the democracies would awaken to the danger of fascism. In our next installment of World War II Chronicles, we examine Germany's expansion and its enigmatic leader, Adolf Hitler. I hope you will join us.